It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's Living the Bream with host of Fox News at Night, Shannon Bream. All right, this week on Live in the Bream, we are doing the top headlines, and they are all about the passing of Justice Ginsburg, what happens next, the potential contenders for her seat, uh, the fights on Capitol Hill, where this is going to go. And we have two fantastic guests. If you've joined us on Fox News at Night, you have seen them there. We think this is the first time we have them paired together, so we're going to do this on radio, and hopefully they'll come do it on TV as well. We've got Dave Brown with us, who headed up nominations when he was a staffer for Senator Murray over on Capitol Hill. He's a Democratic strategist, and you've seen him come discuss all kinds of topics on with us. Also with us today, Mike Davis. He's the president and founder of the Article 3 Project, or A3P. Uh, He has all kinds of bona fides on the Hill, as well as former chief counsel on nominations to the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, He's a former clerk for now Justice Gorsuch. So these gentlemen know a thing or two about the judiciary, how it works, how the nomination and confirmation process works. And we're glad to have them both with us. Welcome, guys. Hey, Shannon. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having me, Shannon. Okay, I want to first start by asking you both uh, to give us some thoughts on the legacy, the seat that is left open now by Justice Ginsburg, what her mark will be on the court and more broadly on the country. Uh, Mike, start with you. Um, so Justice Ginsburg was uh, a force. She was the lioness of the left, uh, the intellectual force of the liberal wing of the Supreme Court, uh, definitely a trailblazer. And just on a personal note, when I joined Justice Gorsuch on the Supreme Court as one of his first law clerks, she was incredibly welcoming and kind to Justice Gorsuch and his law clerks. So I have the greatest respect for Justice Ginsburg, and uh, it is a sad day that she has passed. Um, She leaves behind a tremendous legacy. Dave? Yeah, no, I I think that's right. I I can't imagine uh, anyone in in modern day filling her shoes and occupying the the role in history, the space in history that she did and has. And certainly she shattered a million glass ceilings for so many women who are now lawyers, judges, and, and leaders in their fields. And so she is, I think, both someone who will be looked to as uh, an incredible icon on the left, as a progressive champion, as a moral voice, as a, a voice of just unimpeachable integrity, um, but also, too, you know, marked by the fact that she enjoyed uh, friendships with with uh, uncommon bedfellows, people like Justice uh, Scalia, people with whom she ardently disagreed on policy, on the law, on uh, ideology, perhaps even, but uh, recognized that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, they served an institution and they did so with with dignity and and honor and they did so as colleagues and friends. And so I think that is a mark of a a tremendous human being. Well said, gentlemen. Um, She leaves a a, a huge gap and a change on the court because we always say this. I mean, anytime there's a new justice, it really changes the feel of the court. There are just nine of them serving together generally at any one time. Um, And they do each have their own personalities. But because this is such a demanding, um, very insulated kind of role that they play, they do all have to find their footing with each other and within the court and how they work together. So now we start to wait and see who will be the next person uh, to join the court. The Republicans and President Trump are determined that it will be on his watch. So let's talk through some of the names that have been 
batted about a little bit. Um, we think the list is very much narrowed down, but let's talk a little bit so people um, know a little bit about some of the folks on the list. Let's talk about Allison Jones rushing. Mike, if you would. Yeah, uh, Judge, Judge Allison Jones rushing is a new Fourth Circuit clerk uh, in a North Carolina seat on the Fourth Circuit. She uh, is 38 years old. She clerked for uh, then Judge Gorsuch two years after I did on the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. She clerked for Judge Sentel on the D.C. Circuit, and she clerked for uh, Justice Thomas on the Supreme Court. She was in. Uh, she was a top litigator at a top law firm uh, for 10 years uh, and before she was put on the bench two years ago. She is a favorite of religious conservatives, evangelicals. She did a lot of work for the Alliance Defending Freedom, or ADF, um, and she uh, is a rock star uh, on, the, on the Fourth Circuit. Uh, she's a little bit young, and I'll acknowledge that. Um, but she certainly has a very, very bright future ahead of her in the federal judiciary. And Dave, I, you know, I'm not sure how serious the president is about her because of her age, but it seems to be the thing he likes to troll the left with a little bit. Like, hey, she's just 38. She could have 50 years up there. Um, he seems to be sort of and poking at the left a little bit with uh, thinking about somebody so young on his short list. Well, she's certainly young. I mean, she also obviously has uh, a troubling record, particularly with her affiliations with uh, Alliance for Defending Freedom and, and the positions they've, they've uh, taken against people who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender in the U.S. So I think uh, it's fair to say that this would be an alarming pick to, to many people who care about uh, equality for people who are, who are uh, gay. And, you know, the president, I think, has a fundamental choice that he's probably struggling with if, if reports are to be believed. And that really is about whether he nominates someone who will help him with his reelect in terms of occupying uh, perhaps uh, coming from a state that is a battleground state like Florida or someone who's going to really satisfy movement conservatives and, and galvanize his evangelical base at a time when he needs all the help he can really get in terms of both holding his numbers uh, at 2016 levels, but also potentially even picking off a few folks who flipped and voted for Democrats in 2018, um, but who might, he thinks he might be able to bring back to his side for 2020. And so, so much of the calculus for, for any of these nominees, I think really will be a mix of, of trying to think about the political context for, for the election and also to how he satisfies really the deal he made with evangelicals who installed him as president uh, to ensure that, you know, they're getting someone they consider suitably socially conservative. And so folks will know a little bit more about what you're discussing. The group that she has some affiliation with Alliance Defending Freedom, they've done a number of cases that have gone to the Supreme Court and and everything in between uh, dealing with religious liberty versus the intersection with uh, LGBTQ rights. Um, So they've been involved in some landmark cases she was asked about that during her Senate confirmation, uh, having the group having been labeled a hate group by uh, some on the left. She said, I never saw anybody espousing hate uh, during her time working with the group. So that is definitely something that will come up that she'll have questions about. But let's talk about Judge Barbara Lagoa. Um, a lot of attention paid to her for a number of reasons. She would be unique. She was the first Hispanic female named to the Florida State Supreme Court. She served many, many years in the state court system there, so she's relatively new to the federal bench. Uh, She comes from, we have to say it, in a political year, uh, a swing state, which may be a consideration for some of the president's team in those who are backing her. Um, Dave, let's start with you this time, then we'll go to Mike uh, about your impressions of Judge Lagoa. 
Yeah. So, I mean, you, you set that up so well, Shannon. I mean, she is obviously from Florida, a key state for the president if he wants to get to 270. Um, she's a Cuban American. And so, uh, and again, just purely from a, from a political electoral perspective, um, that's a base that the president is polling well with uh, right now in Florida. And certainly this would be a way to really bolster that standing. But, you know, again, this sort of speaks to that that cleavage I was describing a moment ago between movement conservatives and, and the more, let's call them political pragmatists within the White House and on the campaign. Um, and really the question is whether she is uh, suitably uh, conservative for uh, folks who are really looking for someone who, who bleeds red and is, is, uh, is you know, unimpeachable in, in terms of, of ideology. And so I think um, that's going to be the debate that's uh, sort of intra-Trump world right now that's really playing out. Um, and you're seeing a lot of coverage right now, Shannon, uh, about uh, whether the president should pick her or, or Judge Barrett and really setting up a, a showdown perhaps between the two. So I, it'll be interesting to see where, where this shakes out. Okay, so Mike, is she conservative enough for the folks who have concerns on that side of the bench and want a specific thing from this president? Sure. I mean, I've heard great things about her from a lot of different people. Um, I think she's more than just a Cuban woman from Florida. Um, and so I think there's a lot more to Judge Lagoa than just political appeal. She's 52 years old. She was a Columbia law grad. She was a former federal prosecutor. She was a Florida state judge for 13 years at every level of the Florida state system, district court, appellate court, uh, Florida Supreme Court. She's been a uh, on the 11th Circuit, a Florida-based seat on the 11th Circuit for a, a year now. Um, she is a committed textualist and originalist as she testified at her hearing. She got 80 votes in the Senate, including a majority of the Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee and a majority of Democrats on uh, in the full Senate. Um, she is ABA well-qualified. ABA well-qualified used to be the Democrats' gold standard. So not only does she uh, have a, a compelling life story and uh, a good political point, she is, she's also a highly qualified jurist who would, uh, would make a great pick for the, for the Supreme Court. We'll have more Live in the Bream in a moment. The Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Okay, so let's now talk to, about the frontrunner who was in the mix the last time around. She is the one that is on the top of everybody's list this time around uh, for their predictions. Judge Amy Coney Barrett, uh, she is 48 years old. She is a mother of seven and currently a federal judge. Um, she's had a little bit more time on the federal bench um, than the other two that we have discussed in this um, top three-ish group that we're talking about. Um, and she has already faced a lot of questions about whether her religious faith, she's devout Catholic, a practicing Catholic, whether it would flow over and um, impact her decisions from the bench Specifically, the left seems most concerned about the issue of Roe v. Wade, about abortion. The Catholic Church has an official position on that. Um, judge Coney Barrett has talked about the fact that no judge should be, um, and she said she would not be influenced by using her faith to reach decisions with regard to the text of the law before her. And yet the concerns remain there. So, Mike, let me start with you about uh, the pluses and the table get to you for her, the case against her. Uh, I think Judge Amy Coney Barrett is a, a rock star. Like you said, she's 48 years old, uh, Notre Dame law grad, number one in her class, executive executive editor of the Law Review, clerk for the late J, uh, late great Justice Scalia. Uh, Scalia's uh, clerk network says that she was one of the best clerks he's ever had, a Notre Dame law professor. She was confirmed three years ago. I mean, when I 
served on the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, for Chairman Chuck Grassley. And she was confirmed with bipartisan support. She got uh, Joe Manchin and Tim Kaine, uh, their support, and then former Senator Donnelly. Uh, Claire McCaskill, former Senator McCaskill, didn't show up to work that day. She was hiding. And Menendez, I think, was in a corruption trial. But she does have bipartisan support. She's a rock-solid conservative. She's unabashedly um, pro-life. And she is a mother of seven, including uh, two adopted children from Haiti. Um, She has a child with uh, Down syndrome. She just has a really compelling story. She's extraordinarily smart. The ABA uh, rated her as well-qualified before. Um, She's certainly well-qualified to be on the Supreme Court, and she has a rock-solid record uh, both in academia and, and on the Seventh Circuit. So Dave, how do Democrats then go about weaving their strategic plan of attack against her as a member of the bench. Um, She does have a compelling personal story. She held up well under the Senate fire during the last round of confirmation hearings, but this is all or nothing for Democrats. And make no mistake, we know that there will be a battle, whether it's her or anyone else, um, to say this seat shouldn't be filled. There's the procedural uh, argument, but we're going to go into hearings. So how would they come at uh, Judge Coney Barrett if she is the nominee? Yeah, I mean, look, I think probably Judge Barrett, more than any other potential nominee, really epitomizes what's at stake uh, with this nomination. And that's really that any vote, any vote from any any member of the Senate uh, to confirm Judge Barrett, um, it's a vote to strike down health care coverage through the ACA, and it's a vote to end pre-existing conditions for millions of Americans at a time when, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and, and what, we just passed the, the 200,000 person threshold, who, Americans who have died, which is just unimaginable and, and horrific. So uh, that's, that's, the, that's the stakes that, that are in play here, Shannon. And, and certainly, I think the American people, uh, they get that. They understand that. I don't think they need Democrats to tell them that. I mean, there's a reason that more than 60% of voters and half of Republicans want to wait for the next president to name uh, the next Supreme Court nominee to replace RBG. I mean, that's according to the Reuters poll that came out uh, earlier this month. So I mean, the stakes are set, but, you know, in terms of her actual substantive positions, uh, you've already touched on, on some of these, but um, her writings do suggest that, that she would reverse Roe v. Wade. I mean, I, and the president has been explicit, painfully explicit, that, that his litmus test is to appoint a, a justice who would reverse Roe. We know that the administration is waiting for next term for, for its case to proceed to the Supreme Court uh, to, to repeal the Affordable Care Act and pre-existing conditions protections. And so she's seen as a pivotal vote there. Um, but I think there's a, a broader question, too, about the, the level of respect she might have for stare decisis, for precedent, which has long been a, a hallmark, a touchstone of, of uh, what it means to be uh, a justice on the Supreme Court. You know, her writings on originalism suggest that uh, recognizing non-originalist precedents can be illegal. That's a startling statement and conclusion and certainly speaks to the fact that she would view um, many precedents as fair game for reversal. Uh, and of course, if you factor in the broader context in which she approaches sort of a social conservatism, um, people, m- Americans are rightly concerned about what that means for uh, voting rights, for issues relating to their health care, again, for people who are LGBTQ, um, for anyone who, who needs a fair shake and, and has a long look to the court and equal protection under the law as, as a protection and as, as a guarantee. So um, those are the types of arguments you're going to hear, Shannon, uh, if she is nominated to the court. Mike, she is no stranger to this process. She knows the questions are coming. Uh, How, if she is the nominee, does she prepare? Does the White House prepare? How does any nominee get prepared 
for walking into these hearings? Well, I think what they, they need to do, what Justice, the, the, the late Justice Ginsburg did during her hearing, which is no hints, no forecasts. Um, it, is a, it is a judicial nominee's ethical duty to go in there and not make promises to senators uh, in, in back rooms of Senate offices how they're going to rule on future cases before them based upon in exchange for their Senate vote. And so it's really important that, uh, that Judge Barrett, like she did in her Seventh Circuit hearing, and like all the other judicial nominees have largely done, and that is to avoid how they're going to rule on future cases. It's not fair to the parties. If you think about it, if you're a party before the Supreme Court and uh, you think you're getting a fair shake, but but a justice has already promised a senator how they're going to rule on a case, it's just it's just not how our, the system is supposed to work. She needs to go in there uh, and uh, talk about, she can talk about her judicial philosophy. She can talk about how she'll go about deciding cases. Uh, she'll, she can even talk about the cases that she's decided in the past or the, her writings from the past. She can look backwards. She just can't talk about how she's going to rule going forward. And I think that's going to be an important uh, line. And so we need to make sure that, um, you know, that senators don't try to get these judicial nominees to violate their ethical duties, especially if these senators are lawyers, which they would have an ethical issue themselves if they're trying to get a judicial nominee to violate their ethical duties. Um, so that's what I would advise um, a Judge Barrett or Judge Rushing or Judge Lagoa to do is uh, stick to what's uh, what Justice Ginsburg did, which is don't answer these questions. All right, Dave. So uh, not a lot of procedural tools available for Democrats right now. How will they approach these hearings? Because we're told they're happening. They, they will happen. Uh, you're right. There, there are only so many tools that are available to Democrats. And, and the reality is that Mitch McConnell has the brute political uh, power right now to, to push through a nomination if, if he chooses to before the election. Um, I think that is a mistake, however. And I think that the reason you haven't seen the majority leader come out quite yet and say definitively this will happen before the election is because he's doing the math. And he recognizes that he is in danger of losing his Senate majority if he does rush through a nomination that, again, more than 60% of voters don't want to have happen. I mean, this is literally a textbook example of a Republican Party that is more likely than not going to lose the Senate. Uh, it stands to lose the White House, imposing its will on the majority of Americans. And so he's running a calculus right now, and he's looking at people like Susan Collins who is one of two Republicans off the cycle, who represents a state that President Trump lost in 2016. He's looking at Cory Gardner, the other, um, who uh, the Cook Report just, just moved from a toss-up race to lean Democrat. And he's trying to figure out what math can I, can I do that makes the most sense to retain a Senate majority while also um, pushing through this nominee. So, you know, I think, I think Shannon, that's the real, the real calculus here for him but Democrats will make sure that voters understand what's at stake. And we've talked about that. And we, we talked about it in terms of Roe. We talked about it in terms of pre-existing conditions and health care. We can talk about it in the context of, of labor rights, of consumer rights. I mean, go down the litany, the list of, of major, major cases that are queued up and potentially could be, sitter, could be considered by the Supreme Court next term. And, you know, I, I would say also, I think if I were Chief Justice John Roberts, Shannon, thinking about the, the institution of the court, I would be really unhappy with how I'm seeing this process play out led by Mitch McConnell, because what he's effectively done 
is weaponized the Supreme Court in a way where the court is now in jeopardy. It's impartiality. It's legitimacy. Every day, more and more, it's become this political polarized weapon in a way that I think it really renders uh, a, a very tough road ahead for the chief justice and for the court to then take on these, these decisions of enormous magnitude and issue decisions that are respected by, by the American people and are trusted by the American people. So, Michael, I'll give you the final word here. I know you're more on the nomination side of things, but you have to be thinking through what Republicans do, the uh, electoral consequences of things Dave mentioned. If it could hurt some of these very vulnerable senators to take a vote or how they vote. So final word to you on the election impact, do you think, of what's playing out right now? In 2016, then-candidate Donald Trump won an upset victory in big part over a Supreme Court fight. In that case, it was Justice Scalia's seat. In 2018, Senate Republicans knocked off four Democrat incumbents in the Senate, while the Democrats uh, won the House of Representatives in big part over a Supreme Court fight. In that case, it was the Kavanaugh fight. If Democrats want to turn this election into a uh, referendum on the Supreme Court fight, uh, I welcome it because it is uh, if the Supreme Court fights turn out very well for Republicans, I think it's going to help President Trump win re-election. I think it's going to uh, help senators in tight races like Senator Ernst in Iowa, like Senator Tillis in North Carolina, um, even McSally, Senator McSally in Arizona. This is going to be a winning issue for Republicans. It unifies the Republican Party. It focuses the Republicans on the issues that matter. It brings in a majority of independents, and it will even bring in some right-thinking Democrats. And so I, I welcome this fight, and um, I, I hope the Democrats make this a front and center issue. Well, you two clearly see uh, the, the candidates differently, the electoral impacts differently. So we thank you for coming to share your uh, two different visions on this. Uh, Dave Brown and Mike Davis, uh, we will see you on Fox News at night very soon as we all continue uh, in the weeks ahead to watch this process play out on Capitol Hill. That's it for this week's Live in the Brain. Thanks for joining us. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.